The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. That which is real cannot be seen with the eyes, but only with the heart. This Dharma is incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing here, now, is rarely seen and experienced even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. With a truly open heart we can see it, we can hear it, we can know and experience it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. There's an old Zen saying, the whole world's upside down. In other words, the way the world looks from the ordinary or conventional point of view is pretty much the opposite of the way the world actually is. There's a story that illustrates this. Once there was a Zen master who was called Bird's Nest Roshi because he meditated in an eagle's nest at the top of a tree. He became quite famous for this precarious practice. Once a student came to visit him and standing on the ground far below the meditating master asked what possessed him to live in such a dangerous place. The Roshi answered, You call this dangerous? What you are doing is far more dangerous. Living normally in the world, ignoring death, impermanence, and loss and suffering, as we all routinely do, as if there is were as if this were a normal and a safe way to live. It is actually much more dangerous and going out on a limb to meditate. So tonight is about establishing a foundation that will and is capable of sustaining our practice. For most people, practice starts with this kind of desire or attraction to the novelty of practicing, whether it is yoga or meditation. Eventually, the student realizes that there is something much more deeper and much more profound, and most certainly that the purpose of practice is not what they originally came for. It is in that moment that it is absolutely necessary that we prepare 
to understand what it means to sustain one's practice, to make it sustainable. I remember the first time I had a home, a house of my own, with a lawn on it and a gate around it and neighbors on both sides. And I learned almost quickly that the lawn surrounding the house was very different than the lawns in that particular neighborhood and throughout that entire township. It was a, of a particular seed called soyza. And it was a type of lawn that when uh, fall came around and winter came, it would turn brown and looked as if it died. And that was around the time I moved in. And so obviously without knowing about this lawn, I immediately went to the lawn place and got fertilizer and all of the stuff needed to you know, make the lawn green and come alive and brought it back to Jizuan uh, in Cinnaminson and got the uh, spreader out and started reading the bag on the front lawn as to how to put it into the spreader and how to spread it. And fortunately, my neighbor was out doing the same on his lawn and he saw me reading the bag and came over and said hello and he looked at the bag and he, told, and he immediately looked at me and said, no, 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 you can't use that fertilizer on this lawn. If you use that fertilizer in this lawn, it will burn up and die most surely. And I said to him, but it's fertilizer. And the lawn guy told me, it's fertilizer for lawns. He said, yes, it's fertilizer for lawns, but not for this lawn. You need the right fertilizer for this lawn. So I took the bag back to the guy and said, why didn't you know I need the right fertilizer for this lawn? And I got the right fertilizer and returned to fertilize the lawn. I tell you that story because it was one of the lessons that we need to take a look at tonight necessary for sustainable and fulfilling spiritual practice. In order to understand what we need to sustain and to practice fulfilling our lives with a spiritual practice, we need to first of all identify what this is. And then we need to understand what it needs to be sustainable. So for centuries, all of the great teachings, among many of the similar teachings, all point to one teaching in particular. All of the great teachers and masters have said the same thing. That what we are, what we are, are spiritual beings having a human experience. Yet when you take a look at people's lives, including spiritual people, you immediately notice that they tend to live their lives as if, and they tend to practice as if the opposite is true. And when we live as if the opposite was true, when we live that way, it's like putting the wrong fertilizer on a lawn that cannot and does not need that fertilizer. Eventually our practice burns out, or we burn out, and we find ourselves once again adrift in the ocean of life, seeking and searching for more, for better, and for different. And so we are spiritual beings having a human experience, means that we need to understand the nature of spirit, 
We need to understand this reality, this Tathagata's true meaning. And we need to then understand what this food, this fertilizer, for this lawn is, and use it regularly. And so we begin with what the Buddha called right point of view, right understanding. And for tonight's discussion, right point of view is we are spiritual beings having a human experience. And as I said a moment ago, most of us tend to live our lives as if the opposite were true. We tend to contrive a lifestyle that is about securing the longevity of this human experience. All the while knowing or ignoring, as the master said to the young man criticizing him, that no matter how much we try to do that, this human experience is of the nature of impermanence. And not only is the human experience, not only is my lifetime of the nature of impermanence, and is determined by that nature, that is to say, my lifetime is out of my control. I can attempt to contrive it this way or that way by eating right and exercising right and meditating and so forth. But the truth of the matter is, is that I will one day die, and that's not the worst part. As you have heard me say, the worst part is, I haven't a clue when. And most of us live our lives as if that is not true, as if we are going to be here permanently, or worse than that, we are going to be here for a long enough time to get everything done and everything in. And we find, from the Zen perspective, that to be a primary cause for suffering, a primary cause for suffering in people's lives. Now, when we say that the human experience is impermanent, we also mean that everything involved with the human experience is also impermanent. Everything involved with human experience is also permanent, uh, such as uh, youth, such as health, such as uh, the good times, the happy times, such as the things we want, the things we set our lives up to pursue, and so forth. Everything, as we say in Zen, is of the nature of impermanence. So when we take a look at living our lives as if the human experience is the opposite of that, as if being human is, imperm is really permanent, as if there's some way, somehow, we can secure our lives to avoid that, most of us find ourselves suffering from that fact and that fact alone. Most of the human experience of stress, most of our stress is about resisting what's so and living our lives in a way to avoid that. So when we are focused on the human experience alone and the things of the world alone, kind of like what Jesus meant when he said, man cannot live by bread alone, there is nothing really wrong with that, except that we find our experience of life, that life force within us and around us, to be out of balance, to be kind of you know top-heavy and so forth. And we are always pursuing, pursuing, pursuing 
more, better, and different, not because what is already so for us does not have all we need, but because, again, we live unbalanced lives. And there's a lot of emphasis in our world today, particularly in our culture and society, about living a more balanced life, eating a more balanced diet, exercising, and taking care of this body. And you will notice that most of the focus is about taking care of this body. And it's the part that, again, Jesus meant when he said, eating bread alone, or trying to survive by bread alone. In Zen, there is clearly an emphasis on taking care of the body. But that effort is incomplete when we ignore and when we give less value to taking care of what I call the heart or the mind. And the reason for that is we will take a look at in um, the uh, anatomy of Zen heart, Zen mind tonight. The reason for that is that mind and heart inform body. That body or the physical world is the effect and not the cause in the universe. The body is the effect of something larger than the body itself. Life is the effect of something larger than this impermanent, temporary lifespan you and I live. And when we truly embrace the reality that we are spiritual beings having a human experience, then, for the sake of conversation, our planning for the future must be much different than that we usually plan for. Our planning must be much different than what we usually plan for. In other words, we need to plan for impermanency. We need to plan for life beyond the existence of this body. We need to plan for it in such a way that is paradoxical, in that, for example, in Zen we understand that this birthday we celebrate every year is another delusion. It's not real, because that which we are has no beginning, has no end, has no in-between. But because we exist in this form, in this physical matter, it experiences itself as having an, a beginning and having an end and a middle. We talk about life that way. Here I am starting, and I'm on my way down there, which is the end, and in between here and there is the middle. And the body experiences itself in that way. And the aim and objective, for example, of real meditation and yoga practice is to shake that experience up and realign it with reality so that our experience is not of the body alone, but of that which is larger than ourself. And so I talk a great deal and have for 37 years about something that usually falls either on deaf ears or sounds like a foreign language to most people. And I say to my students and the people that have come to Pine Wind over the last 27 years that uh, you must have a purpose for your practice 
larger than yourself. You must have a purpose for practicing, for meditating, for yoga practice, for prayer, for living the ethical or moral life. You must have a purpose for that larger than yourself. And most of us, if we are willing to be honest, as I said, all of us, myself included, at least in the very beginning, approach spirituality in the same way we approach a beer, mm-hmm. or in the same way we approach you know, going to a party tonight. We are, we are excited about the gratification it will bring us, and while we're in the party, we even think it's going to last forever, and there's nothing really we have to do about it, and then the party's over. And I used to talk about it this way, having some experience in my much, much, much younger days of going out on Saturday night with my friends to, you know, different clubs and parties and staying out to like 3, 4 o'clock in the morning a long time ago. <laughs> and, um, you, you, you know, we would go into these really dark places and there would be lights flashing and, you know, you could see but not see everything. And there was a reason for that, because it kept you from reality. You know, while you were in there dancing in these dark places with lights flashing, the party felt like it's going to go on forever. And the most terrible thing was staying until the club closed, because that's when they turned on the lights. And you got to see that it wasn't as pretty and as exciting as you thought it was. It was bored and cigarette ashes everywhere and it was some place you would not choose to be. And that's why they turn on the lights because they want you to leave. <laughs> they want you to get out. And spiritual practice is like that. <coughs> when you first arrive at a yoga center and find yourself a yoga teacher and you find yourself a Zen master to study with, there's this Let's party, you know, party on, you know, and, you, and you're pouring yourself into uh, the practice. You're going to meditation every day, you're there at the early morning sittings, you're doing what the teacher says, you're practicing at home, you're identifying with it, and then the light comes on. And in Zen, the light is purposefully lit because you can't practice without looking at what is so. You know what and very much like the clubs, again, while the lights are off and you get these glimpses of reality, that idea or that reality we're experiencing at the moment isn't what's so. And it's intended to do exactly what is at the heart of the difficulty of most people in practice. It's, the ten- it's intended to distract you. It's intended to bring your attention away from what is really so. Authentic spirituality, the spirituality of living a Zen-inspired life, is not intended to take you out of reality. It is not intended to take you to some blissful, nirvanic, utopia place somewhere in the heavens. It is intended to take you exactly where you are because you are having a human experience and whether you like it or not the human experience as the Buddha said involves difficulty involves suffering and if your spiritual practice 
and your devotion to that practice um, is uh, not real for you, uh, most people end up leaving yoga practice or meditation or Zen monasteries because, you know, it hurts. <laughs> you know, it, it, it takes effort. It requires real work and so forth. And that's not what I've come here for, you're saying. And so we find ourselves adrift on the sea of delusion. And like most people out at sea for long periods of times, thinking we see an island to land at. And the closer we get to every one of those islands, they disappear. So we need to wake up to what practice really is about, to what this, what we call Zen heart, Zen mind is about. And Zen practice in particular, or the Zen-inspired life, is about taking that nervous energy of ours, of running and going and coming and worrying and planning futures that can't work in the long run. They can only work temporarily. All of the futures we plan for our human experience can only work temporarily. Sometime the lights are going to come on, you see. And inevitably, and we'll take a look at that part tonight also, inevitably, difficulty is going to show up. It is a part of life. It has nothing to do with you doing wrong, or you being bad, or your karma, or God doesn't like you, or you're a sinner, and so forth. It has to do with the fact that the human experience involves suffering, as the Buddha said in the First Noble Truth when he declared Life is suffering. And the objective of any spiritual practice is to prepare you for that. Is to prepare you to be able to meet that reality with all victorious mastery. And most of us do not practice yoga or meditation or contemplation or prayer, whatever your practice is. Most of us do not practice it to master it. We practice it to feel good, or we practice it to get through the night. When you come and study with me at the monastery, or if you begin to study meditation with me here beginning next Tuesday, you will hear me say you have not come to learn to meditate. That's not why I'm here, and that's why, not why you're here. You've come to master meditation. And if you're not here to master it, you're wasting your time and my time, you say. So, when we take a look at the first requirement for sustainable and fulfilling practice, it has to do with what I call dropping anchor. It has to do with the thing that most people, particularly in our culture, in our society, are scared to death of. It's a word that scares them worse than taxes, a word that scares them worse than death, a word that scares them worse than anything else, and it is commitment. Without commitment, there are no possibilities. If you are not prepared to drop anchor, all you get to do is drift on the sea of life, here to there, seeing the mirages of those islands and everything else. 
Where there is no commitment, there is no sustainability. Only the committed person is able to sustain the experience that spiritual practice provides for us. Only the person who intends to stick around. Most students in Zen, for example, in training in meditation, and yoga and meditation is training. And again, that's an attitude we need to really shake up and, and get real about. You come here to train. You come to Pine Wind to train. And everything that you know the mind conjures up about training is so in spiritual training. Training the mind is just as, if not more difficult, than the greatest athlete with the most gold medals in the Olympics ever trained. You see. The body is easier to train than the mind. You see. The mind is much more difficult, and that is why you have masters and then everybody else. There is no in-between. There is no you know, masters and then this and then this and then that. That is why enlightenment is so absolute. It's enlightenment, you're either awake or you're not. You know, it's kind of like pregnancy. You're either pregnant or you're not. You can't be partially pregnant and you can't be maybe pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not, you see. And so where there is no commitment, there is no sustainability. And most of us do not appreciate the fact that that's the problem of practice for us. It's not the postures. It's not because my body is tight and, and all of that. That's part of it. But the real difficulty is what Suzuki Roshi called maintaining beginner's mind. And by beginner's mind, he means that person who was so excited to get to yoga class for the first time, so excited to sit and meditate for the first time and to be part of a spiritual community and was ready to do anything on that day and so forth. Maintaining that beginner's mind, the mind of curiosity, the mind of inquiry, and the mind of commitment, or what I call a dropping anchor. Until you drop anchor, all you do is drift further and further away from the shore. Until the ship of life drops anchor, it just drifts further and further away from the shore. So without commitment, there is no possibility. Without commitment, there is no sustainability. And where there is no sustainability, eventually, there is no fulfillment. Fulfillment is a function of sustainability. Sustainability is a function of commitment. Michael Lewis said, Commitment, by its nature, frees us from ourselves, and while it stands us in opposition to some, it joins us with others, similarly committed. Commitment moves us from the mirror, trop, the mirror trap of the self-absorbed with the self to the freedom of a community of shared values. In Zen, we have a form or etiquette of identifying uh, certain people in our community, and it is the robes and the color of robes that we wear. And you don't get a robe at Pinewind Monastery until I am convinced you are committed. Uh, and so 
the people who, who wear the robes are people I have a kinship with. I have a special relationship with. And that's based not on the fact that they're special or more important than anyone else. It's based on the fact that they are ordinary people who have committed to an extraordinary way of living. Spirituality is extraordinary. Spirituality is extraordinary because it is the stuff of the spirit. It is the stuff of divine, they're saying. And so there is a kinship. And what Michael Lewis is saying to us is that one of the uh, byproducts of commitment and dropping anchor is even though, you know, some people regularly say to me, you know, Roshi, my family thinks I'm crazy. You know, my, my friends don't understand why I meditate so much, why I come here so much, you know, why I don't go out with them like I used to, and why I don't hate like I used to, and all of that stuff. You know, I seem very odd to them. And, you know, I warn people ahead of time, of course, because the world is not conducive for health, happiness, and well-being. Therefore, it's not conducive for anything spiritual. And so even though that's part of it, it also brings you into the company of a committed community and others with similar commitments. And that is an essential part of sustainable practice as well. No one can do this alone. No one can get through life alone. Man, you know, is not an island. We are by nature relational. And Zen spirituality is by nature relational. So we need to drop anchor. We need to enter into relationship with that reality we call spiritual, that reality we may refer to as divine, and we need to learn how to live in that reality in order to sustain us while we are in this temporary and impermanent human experience. Any questions about that? Did you raise your hand? <laughs> yeah. huh? Not really. But you did, yeah. I saw it. Oh, you wanted. No, you wanted, but <laughs> I saw it. Oh. <laughs> you have a question? I'll have to come up with one. Okay, you come <laughs> up with that. <laughs> Hi. Hi, um, Brendan. Um, Hi. A question. So, your point about there's no uh, gradation of, of um, enlightenment. I'm sorry, I, say that there's again. No gradation of enlightenment. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. I, I see it that way. I mean, um, I think that there's definitely gradation of the path towards enlightenment, and you can have people that are, you know, practicing and working towards it that are not, well, it's not that they're better or worse than that, another part of that, but they can have glimpses of certain, you know, spiritual aspects that others do not. So I don't, I don't know if I, can you expand upon why you think there's no gradation there? Uh, I, I don't think there's no gradation. I know there's no gradation. Okay. okay? And... There's a difference, and I'm glad my friend Dr. Grossman is with me, because he's in the field of OBGYN, which is the field of birthing and what have you. There's a difference between the, sp the period 
which is what I think you're telling me, this movement towards that waking up certainly has its stages, okay? But just like the child is not born until the child is born, okay? And everything in between is important, and it's important to understand all of that, of course, okay? But the birth is everything. So the birth is enlightenment. At that moment, the child is fully human and fully capable of living the human experience. Until then, whatever insights, my, my three and a half year old daughter talks about being in her mommy's belly. She actually talks about that with me and says, you know, and it was dark in there and I couldn't see you, but I heard you, daddy. And, and she was right, because I regularly talked to her when her mom was pregnant and so forth. I would go to her mom every night and kneel down and say, hello, this is daddy speaking, and uh, have this conversation with her and so forth. But her ability to interact with me, for example, was limited. It's not until she came into the world fully and has begun her gradation approach to being a full human being, an adult, if you will, or a mature person. Uh, it, it's not until that happened. So enlightenment is like that. Certainly, uh, my students report to me regularly some powerful insights that they have along the way, uh, some moments of aha that they have along the way. And then they tend to forget that and go back to suffering, you see. Uh, and so it's, that's what we mean when we say you either are awake or you're not. There is no in-between there. And by awake, we don't mean this special event called enlightenment. We mean living at your fullest potential, living at your fullest capacity, using all your faculties, not just, for example, intellect, but also intuitive wisdom, and so forth. That's what the difference is between being awake and not awake, able to discern, as I've been talking about so far this evening, between that which is temporary and that which is not. Because when you're unable to discern that, um, you invest into a lot of stuff that no matter how much you invest into it is going to change uh, and is out of your control. And so one of the byproducts of a fully enlightened being is making investments that's going to last and sustain and so forth. So, uh, so I think we're saying the same thing, just semantics. Thank you. Anyone else? So whether you, you, know, you need to qualify the space between entering a spiritual practice and you know, arriving at its singular objective or not, what is absolutely necessary in the beginning of that journey, in the beginning of that, is commitment, is this dropping anchor. Uh, we tend to... You know, we call them, uh, we have a name for people like that at, at Pine Wind, Zendo Hoppers, we call them. A Zendo Hopper is really, by the time they get to Pine Wind, they've done at least 10 other things, and we know they're not going to stay. They're going to hop from here to something else later. So we call them Zendo Hoppers. And most people's practice is like that. And what I'm saying to you tonight 
in 37 years of doing this in my own uh, life experience, it was and did not begin to uh, uh, feel real, feel grounded until I dropped anchor. Until I dropped anchor. And you know, one of the uh, co comparable um, po uh, points of history is that in ancient times, uh, in Europe, for example, when they were building the great cathedrals and the cities and so forth and the monuments, the people who did that work were the people who made money. If you weren't, for example, a master craftsman, you were not permitted to travel and make money. So in order to become a master craftsman, you started out as an apprentice. And you went and you found yourself a master bricklayer or a master whatever, stained glass maker, a master craftsman. And you studied with that person until you were a master yourself. And then they gave you this kind of test. And if you passed the test, you kind of like got this passport. And you were then permitted to go out and make your own money and travel from city to city looking for work to do. Um, Zen, a spiritual practice is like that. Uh, you know, it is again important to understand that you know there is this apprenticeship, and and it has its stages. But the aim and objective of any authentic effort, any authentic spiritual practice, is mastery of that particular practice is mastery of it. Uh, and nothing really changes in a person's life until that happens. At least that's what they've reported to me. And that's been my experience. So the next ingredient to this foundation, to this you know, sustainable and fulfilling practice, has to do with what I said a moment ago, having a purpose for that larger than self-gratification larger than just wanting to feel better. Most people practice yoga the same way people go to the gym. Uh, it, 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 it gets them in shape, it, um, it makes them feel better, and so forth, and the same thing with meditation. But the ancient Zen masters used to say, you know, a day of lying and pilfering, meditation will not cure. And so we understand from those words that our spiritual practice is not to be a supplement in our life. It is not to be something we add into the day, at the end of the day, in an effort to try to get some gratification before we have to go to bed and go back into the rat race tomorrow. It is a way of life, and it has to do with what, we, what the Buddha called a noble purpose a noble purpose. So the second ingredient in the right fertilizer for uh, living the Zen-inspired life, living a fulfilling life, is having a noble purpose. Only having a purpose larger than yourself, a noble purpose, brings meaning to any life. No matter how accomplished, successful, or financially secure that life might be. When living a Zen-inspired life, or one that is inspired by genuine spiritual desire, there is only one purpose we call a noble purpose. That is to live my life as a benefit for others. 
as a benefit to others. So if you were listening a moment ago, we talked about the relational nature of authentic spirituality. Spiritual practice is about relationship. Life is about relationship. I can remember, uh, and you need to know that my, my brother and dearest friend Len delivered my daughter, and I was in there with him when that happened, and I can remember uh, when she came out of her mother's womb, uh, the doctors pushed me out of the way and took her over to a table and started cleaning her up and doing things to her. But I went over right away because I wasn't going to leave her. I waited long enough for her to get here, and I wasn't about to leave her and so forth. So I went over, and I was kind of like relaying to her mother, Oh, she's got blue eyes. Oh, she's, this and oh, she's so beautiful, and, and so forth. And I can remember while she was lying there and they were swaddling her, uh, reaching for her, and she grabbed this finger and held tightly. And then I picked her up and brought her over to her mother and laid her down on her mother and she just snuggled right in. We are hardwired for connection. We are hardwired for relationship. It is a biological fact that we respond to relational behavior. We respond to that naturally. We're not, it's not something we learned. It's not something that was part of our conditioning. It is something we brought with us, something we were born with. Now, the opposite we can learn. We can be turned off by relationship. We can be taught to be fearful of relationship. But the being relational, it, we are hardwired for that. So it goes that if we're going to have a purpose for practicing or for being spiritual, and if that purpose must be larger than just self-gratification, that the only noble purpose for authentic spiritual practice is to live my life as a benefit to others. To live my life as a benefit for others. Where there is no purpose, there is no freedom. To do something, anything, just out of some need or desire or to find <coughs> some gratification is the same stuff and the cause of suffering. So it is only, as we'll talk about the third piece here, being practicing on purpose. First you need to have a noble purpose, then you need to practice on purpose. But you need a noble purpose to, in order to be able to practice on purpose. So when we're just pursuing self-gratification in meditation or yoga or anything else like that, um, what's missing there is the purpose of that. You know, uh, when, you, when you go to India and when you, when you, you know, learn more about the Buddhas and uh, Jesus and the other teachers, there is a common thread that runs through every one of those spiritual wisdoms. And that is, they all came to live their lives as a benefit for others. Yogis taught this. Yogis learned it, master it, and then teach it. They can't not teach it. The evidence of a true yogi is the commitment they make to teaching it. The evidence of a true uh, master of meditation is, is very much like we are hardwired for relationship 
we are also hardwired for giving. One of the things, if you're a parent, you'll know what I mean, that uh, you know, all the new writings about children and parenting talk about is, and, and it's evident in my daughter, I can't go into the kitchen to prepare anything without her asking, can I help? Can I help? We are hardwired, and in fact, uh, the psychologist people will tell you, you got, you got to let them help, because if you don't let them help, that's kind of like uh, contradictory and really uh, leaves you know, a message we don't want to leave. So we are hardwired for relationship, and we are hardwired to be helpful. And something happens in our life, along with everything else that happens in our life, in our conditioning, that again thwarts that. Somewhere we, you know, we kind of like disconnect with that wiring and associate with that very selfish and self-gratifying part of us. Now that selfish and self-gratifying part of us is also part of our wiring. If it weren't, we couldn't survive more than a few days, you see. Certainly when my daughter cried and was satisfied by from the bottle or her mother's tit, uh, that was gratification. That was gratifying and so forth. So, but we need to take that and we need to shape it into what Suzuki Roshi called wise selfishness. And wise selfishness is this. It is important that I eat this bread. It is also important that I share this bread. You see. It is important that I eat this bread. It is also important that I share this bread. And one of the tools in Zen Buddhism used to bring this, to get this across, has to do with what we call hungry ghosts. There is a ceremony for hungry ghosts that is regularly practiced in most Zen monasteries, and it has to do with uh, this whole idea that when we are living our lives just out of gratification, uh, we are a hungry ghost. And if we die like that, we continue on as hungry ghosts. And the image of the hungry ghost uh, has to do with a Zen story about a man who dies and is taken uh, uh, to see heaven and hell. And he, he goes into hell and when he gets there, he, he sees this very long buffet table filled with all kinds of foods and all kinds of delicacies. And yet the people around the table were starving. Their, their, heads, was, their heads were very big, their, their necks were very small, and their bellies were very bloated. And um, they had uh, chopsticks uh, attached to their hands. And uh, yet, even though there was this buffet table, they were always hungry. And then he was taken to heaven, and he gets off the elevator in heaven, and lo and behold, there's another buffet table. And a bunch of people around that buffet table, you see. Yet, they seem to be fulfilled. They too had chopsticks for hands. They seem to be fulfilled. So the difference that he learned between heaven and hell was heaven and hell really is the same thing except for this piece. In heaven, they learned how to be fulfilled by feeding each other. You see. 
they were able with the long chopsticks to get the food to each other. And so everybody got a share of the buffet. In hell, everybody was trying to get it to their mouths only and could not, you see. So by why selfishness, we mean it is beneficial for me to take care of you. It is beneficial for me to make sure you have bread also. So the noble purpose in any authentic spiritual practice has to do with living my life as a benefit for others. Not just seeking my own gratification, but, in, but working towards the satisfaction and fulfillment of all the many beings. Of all the many beings. So when you are trained in etiquette at a Zen monastery to meditate, when you take your seat, you recite this kind of Durrani quietly in your mind. I take the seed of enlightenment not for myself alone, but so that all the many beings may be enlightened. And this is also the prayer of the icon of the Bodhisattva, who is the highest and most enlightened of all enlightened beings. And the Bodhisattva is that uh, imagery, if you will, of a person who even though they get to that place where they can enter nirvana, chooses not to chooses to continually come back into the human experience until all beings are liberated, until all beings are ready to enter nirvana. When you practice on purpose, your practice is about something larger than the self you call yourself, which will use even spirituality to seek its desire towards self-gratification. If you want to begin to get an understanding of how to design your spiritual practice and your commitment to spiritual practice effectively and sustainably, uh, I suggest you read Chungyam Trungpa's book, uh, Spiritual Materialism. And he talks about this in there. It says the ego will even use spirituality for its own benefit. Okay? And you need to develop the keenness there to see that when that's going on. Helen Keller wrote this. Many persons have a wrong idea of what constitutes true <coughs> happiness. It is not attained through self-gratification, but through fidelity to a noble purpose. And the way that I have always said that is, the only time I am absolutely secure in the experience of being loved is when I'm in the experience of loving someone else. It's in loving my three-and-a-half-year-old daughter that I know she's crazy about daddy. She also tells me that, but she shows it too. And I, I don't doubt that at all. I don't doubt that at all. So part of the fertilizer, the ingredients of the fertilizer for sustaining the lawn of spiritual practice has to do with having a noble purpose or having a purpose larger than yourself, larger than self-gratification. Any questions? Hi. Hi, my name's Peggy. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, of course it is. <laughs> um, I almost lost my train of thought. Mm -hmm. Going back to... Um, I do that to people. Wise selfishness. Is that pretty much like the idea that there is no real altruism because it's because 
to uh, to aspire to a noble purpose is for our own benefit. And it is inherent. And it is inherent. We are hardwired mm -hmm. to give. Right. And most people lives become, you know, stuck <coughs> in the muck when they stop giving, you see. So that's why all of the great teachers said, uh, you know, to give is to receive. If you want to receive, you have to give, okay? You have to give. The giving and the receiving is the yin and yang. And yes, there's no such thing as someone who chooses to be altruistic. There's only someone who awakens to that altruistic uh, nature that is within us and lives accordingly. And is the quote by Nelson Mandela, I think, when he said, who are you not to be um, outstanding, wonderful child of God, is also saying that who are you not to want a, um, a real purpose in life? Yeah, is that the same? it's the same thing. Uh, and it's very much like the quote, and I don't have it here with me, and I should have in anticipation of your sharing, but uh, it's very much like the quote that says, it is not the darkness we fear, it is not our shadow we fear, but our light and our greatness that we fear the most, you see. And that is why most people go around as nothing more, as Bernard Shaw said, than merely little cards of ailments and grievances complaining that the world is not devoted to giving to them. He's, you know, taking care of their needs, you see. And uh, the next quote I like uh, very much by George Eliot, when we take a look at practicing on purpose, Eliot says, what makes life dreary is the want of a motive. So if you've got to have a motive, you know, and most people, when you talk to people, that's how most people live. They'll tell you, well, I do this because, you know, there's two words that you need in, in, in learning how to effectively communicate in a way that supports vitality in the relationship, there are two words that you always need to listen for, because and but, okay? Because and but, whenever you hear those words, what follows is a lie, okay? What follows is a lie, okay? So, uh, you know, so when I have to have a motive, you know, uh, again, George Eliot says that makes life dreary, okay? So back to what you originally stated, yes, altruism is living in harmony with our true nature. Uh, when we live in harmony with our true nature, we don't need the teacher to say to us, go sit, okay? When we live in harmony with our true nature, we don't need someone to say, go volunteer, Okay, we, you know, my daughter doesn't need me to come in and say to her, you should learn to want to help daddy. She does that automatically all the time. Can I help? Can I help? And so forth, I see. And again, it is in, get, it is in you know, getting in, getting your hands into the dirt and side by side in that sangha or community really working, okay? So this is when, as, as a teacher, one of the most difficult uh, things I deal with is how important it is for the community to come together regularly and practice. Uh, and that still has been, it still remains a difficult issue for me, okay? 
a difficult issue for even my own community to get that, okay? Uh, and, then, and, and in that problem, uh, there is those people who will tell you one of, the, one of the most difficult practices in Zen training is also the most fulfilling practice in Zen training. And we do that once a year, and it's called Odohatsu Sashin, where we practice from dawn to the late night, sometimes midnight and beyond, okay? In the company of each other, as community, as Sangha, in deep, serene meditation. There is no experience more powerful than sitting in a room late into the night when everyone in that room is sharing their exhaustion, sharing their confrontation, sharing their difficulty, sharing their breakthroughs, nothing comparable to it. So again, we are hardwired for this, and we need to respond to that wiring. We need to respond, and as I said, most of us, we don't learn that. That's true about all of us. Most of us learn later on to ignore that. You know, in our culture, for example, this press, which I think started in the 80s more than ever before, towards individuality has certainly reached the level of the pathological. I mean, it's, it's, and we're seeing that pathology everywhere. I mean, just the other day, fifth grade students were arrested for plotting to kill another student. Fifth grade. I'm trying to imagine, I'm trying to wrap my head around that news when I read it. How does it it get to where our fifth grade child conspires with another fifth grader to kill another fifth grader when she's walking down this alleyway to get home? It was a conspiracy. It wasn't like they just, uh, how does that happen? You see? And that's why I say this individuality has certainly reached the level of the pathological, and that pathology is informing every area of our society. You know, every area of our society. You know? Okay? Thank you. So once you have your noble purpose, once you align yourself and stop ignoring your inherent wiring to live your life as a benefit for others, then you need to practice on purpose. And by practicing on purpose, I mean you don't practice just when you feel like practicing. You don't practice just when you need to practice. You practice in the same way you eat breakfast. You need a good, healthy meal to start the day. You need to meditate. You need to do your yoga in the same way, as if your life depended on it, because it does, because it does. And that's what I mean by practicing on purpose. Every time you take to the cushion or the mat, every time you give your heart to another, every time you offer yourself in the service of others, do it on purpose or don't do it at all. Or don't do it at all. There is, you know, my, my daughter keenly knows when I'm giving freely or when I'm giving because I just want her to be quiet. Mm-hmm. I'm saying, I'm saying. And she reacts to that differently. She reacts to that differently. 
you know, and, and you could see it in her body language and everything else. Just like you and I know that someone is giving just because it's giving time, you know, uh, I mean, every 501c3 organization will tell you that the best time to solicit donations is at tax time, okay, because it's deductible, I'm saying. There's a difference between that, that and what Mother Teresa once said when she said, you have only truly given when it hurts, you know saying. When you are given what you don't have, you know saying, and so forth. So that's what we mean by practicing on purpose. We practice every day, every moment of the day, every second of the day on purpose, not just when we need to or when we quote, make time. And, you know, I don't have that as part of tonight, but now that I've mentioned it, you need to know this, and if you don't know this by now, you need to wake up, and that is whenever you try to make, you know, whenever you try to find time to do something, you never will. You never will, because there isn't enough time to do something. There isn't enough time in all the universe to find in order to do something. The only time you are going to have the time is to make the time. You see, 24 hours in a day is an illusion. You can stretch it to how many hours of the day you want. I had to get up at 4.30 this morning. My daughter, uh, you know, was sleeping with me last night because she's afraid, you know, sleeping in her bedroom yet. And so I had to get up at 4.30 because I knew that she'll still sleep so that I could go out and start the fire in the zendo uh, for the morning meditation and do my meditation before she got up, okay? I didn't have any choice in that. I didn't have any choice in that. And I think that that's part of most people's problem in sustaining their practice. Uh, they, they, they have a choice. Or as, again, Suzuki Roshi used to say, your problem is you think you have time. You know, you think you have enough time. And like I often say that in the 70s, some fool made millions of dollars off of you and I with a slogan, this is the first day of the rest of your life. And people wrote it in books and put it on billboards and bumper stickers, and everybody started putting off living from then on, I say. So in Zen, this is the last day of your life. Act accordingly. Act accordingly, and watch how much you get done. This next one, I think, is the toughest. And when I put this together for tonight, uh, I resolved in my mind that I was going to talk to you about this personally. I mean, I'm always talking to you personally, but this I want to talk to you about personally. This is a lesson that I have taught for 37 years but didn't really come home to me until my own life's experience brought it home to me. And that was in 2011 when the most painful thing in my life happened to me. And the fourth ingredient of the fertilization of a sustainable practice has to do with taking the position you don't have to know. You don't have to know. And Pema Chodron has written great volumes of literature on living with uncertainty. 
But again, when you take a look at a person who is living as if they are human, pursuing a spiritual experience, they got to know all the time. Well, what's it going to do for me? Uh, am I going, you know, I, I tell this wonderful story, probably one of my best students and later on to become a very, very dear friend of mine. Uh, I tell this story. Uh, at that time, I was living with two other monks at the monastery, and I was in uh, watching a ball game, and one of the monks came running in and said, Roshi, would you talk to this person? And he handed me the phone. I said, well, what's the matter? I, I don't want to talk to this person. Will you talk to this person? So I said, all right, I got on the phone. And, I, and on the other end of the phone was this personality that sounded like this. Yeah, I want to come there and meditate. I want to know how long it's going to take for me to get enlightened. And, and I said to you, you never, and hung up. But he kept calling back and eventually came. And he ended up being probably one of the best students, truly devoted to this teacher. Uh, and before he fell in love and had to go chase her, uh, probably contributed more to the community than anyone had ever had up to that point. But he learned quickly that he had to give up having to know. He had to, he learned how to give up being so obsessed with certainty. Having to know is a disease of the mind. Its nature is delusionary. <coughs> the singular and exclusive goal of living a Zen-inspired life is freedom. Freedom of the mind which consists of not being dragged about by fear. So in 2011, a uh, very personal, deeply profound and painful experience showed up in my life for a, a good long time and still I'm dealing with the residue of it. And I will tell you that the most painful part of that was forgetting what I just read to you. Forgetting not having to know. So when, you know, the first thing we, we cling to is this notion that if we knew what was next, if we knew what was coming, life would work, you see. And I, I report back to you that even then it doesn't work, you see. Nothing kills life more than the fear of not knowing and obsession with having to know. And I need to tell you that for that year, I was dead. This teacher wasn't alive. I, I did my job, and I did continue to do it well, but I wasn't there. I was dead because I, I was dealing with this, and I had to know. I, and I was obsessed with the ambiguity of all of it and so forth. So nothing kills life more than our obsession, our attachment to this idea of certainty. And we need to start by taking a look at how much of our life is designed to have certainty. Mm -hmm. You see? Uh, when, when I was a kid, and maybe you remember, and we lived in uh, northeast Philadelphia, and it snowed three feet in the morning, and we woke up to three feet of snow outside. We jumped for joy and couldn't wait to get our boots on and coat on and get out into it. Our parents were miserable. 
not because there was three feet of snow outside, but because the night before they listened to Action News that told them there was going to be three feet of snow. And during the night, they thought about that. And they thought about what was going to happen and what they had to deal with. The kids were excited, and we were getting punished for being excited because, you know, what do you got to be excited about? You don't have to drive in this. You don't have to clear that. You don't have so forth. And, you know, I think that's a perfect example. When we are children, we don't want to know anything. We don't care about knowing what's coming. We just dive right in. And that is probably the time we are more alive than any other time in our life. We need to return to that attitude. Katsuki Sikida wrote this. True samadhi is the cleansing of consciousness. And when consciousness is purified emancipation is, in fact, already accomplished. So the cleansing of consciousness has to do with the notion that I know. And because I know, life will be a hell of a lot easier. Whenever you find yourself being dragged about by fear, the fear of not knowing, return to true samadhi. Samadhi in Buddhism means composing the mind. So whenever you find yourself, it's an exercise that I give you in here, and you'll have this to take with you again when you leave tonight. It's an exercise I give you, and it's often referred to as living mindfully. It's a mindfulness exercise. And it has to do with noticing <coughs> when the stress brought by fear of not knowing is going on in you. Okay? So this word samadhi means composing the mind. So it's kind of like saying, compose yourself, you know, get it together, you know, compose yourself. So whenever you find yourself stressed out by the fear of not knowing, the practice is to return to samadhi, to compose yourself. And that composition, samadhi also means deep calmness, serenity, and luminous, okay? So we want to come back to our light. Because what's happening is the fear is clouding it out. When we are in fear, when, we, when our life is fearful, and we are responding to life fearfully, uh, we, we're not seeing correctly. Something is clouding our light, and we don't see what's really so. So the exercise is simply to stop all motion for a moment. Whatever it is you're doing, at that moment just stop whatever it is you're doing. Next, identify where the fear is showing up in your body. So, spirituality is sensual by nature, especially Zen meditation. It is a sensual practice. It has to do with the body. And the body is an instrument of communication. The body never lies. The body never lies. So, if you want a real barometer in your daily living about what's going on with you in your life and the quality of your life, you need to just refer to how your body's feeling at the moment. And when your body feels stressed, it's important to identify where you're feeling the stress. Are you, you know, restricted in the neck muscles? Are you straining? Is the stress in your lower back? Is it in your gut? And so forth. Where is the stress? And then the practice is to follow your breath as you inhale and to breathe deeply into that area. Hold your breath for a moment and shift your awareness, your attention to your exhale. 
And as you exhale, expand your awareness to relaxing that area. So it's kind of like you're taking in life energy, you pause, and as you release that life force, you relax that area that is stressed out. And continue to do that until you know, you're not stressed. And if you do it properly, and if you practice this regularly, if you start to practice, if you've never done this before, or even if you have done this before, and you start to practice this starting tomorrow or tonight when you leave here or right now while you're listening to me, and you're all stressed out about what I'm saying, you know, and you start to practice that, it will be a natural response. It is a, it, when, you, when it becomes natural, it's habitual. When it becomes habitual, you're, the stressful moments in your life get automatically taken care of for us. But that doesn't come without practice. So what stresses us out more than anything else is our obsession for knowing. And when we are obsessed with having to know, fear clouds our vision, clouds our experience, informs our experience. And it not only informs what we will experience, it informs what we're permitted to experience. So you need to know that when I was going through this very bad time in my life, uh, and I was you know, in these moments of fearful stress, I couldn't imagine victory. I couldn't imagine coming out of it. And you've probably been there. It felt like this is going to last forever. And what the hell happened? And <laughs> why did it happen? And all of that. And when you get caught up in that and obsessed with that you know, conversation in your head, um, it feels like no possibility. And that is why you need to stop in those moments and compose your mind, which is really purifying the mind. Again, true samadhi is the cleansing of consciousness. And when consciousness is purified, emancipation is in fact already achieved. So by simply purifying or cleansing your consciousness at that moment, clearing away the fearful darkness and the clouds blocking your light and your vision, uh, you become free. Because what happens is, is what's left in front of your sight is reality. And reality is you inherently possess, I inherently possess, not only the capacity to go on, as I've learned since 2011, not only the capacity to continue, but the capacity to live with all victorious mastery. You know what I'm But when you're obsessed with knowing, with the idea of, I got to know what's going to happen. What is what's going to happen tomorrow? What is this happening for? Why is this happening? When you're obsessed with that, it feels like you're never going to reach that point. And as long as you continue to be informed by that experience, uh, there will be suffering. Any questions about that? So sustainable spiritual practice involves detaching from having to know tomorrow, why, when, and how. It involves detaching. Because one of the surest things that thwarts a person's spiritual practice and commitment to something like Zen or yoga is, but I don't feel enlightened yet. <laughs> when am I going to be enlightened? When am I going to start to feel like I'm yogic? <laughs> no. mm -hmm. 
Um, in Zen, when you do that, we have a stick in the Zendo called Chiesaku, and literally translated, it means the encouragement stick. And the Zen master comes around and smacks you with it. I say. Uh, and it kind of like shakes you up a little bit and you get back to reality. So we're going to take a break, give you an opportunity to take a breather, practice that exercise if you're stressed out, and uh, when the bell rings, we'll come back and complete this for the night. We're going to take a short break because we have run a little longer than I thought. So I'd like to uh, quickly go through the first four and then quickly go through the remaining six. Drop anchor. You must drop anchor. Until you drop anchor, don't expect anything but to continue floating further and further away from the shore. <coughs> Have a noble purpose. There is only one noble purpose for spiritual practice. There is only one singular and exclusive purpose for spiritual practice, and it is to learn and nurture and cultivate the ground for living your life as a benefit for others. When you practice your particular practice, when you meditate, when you practice yoga, when you pray, when you serve, do it on purpose or don't do it at all. And number four that we covered is you don't have to know. Give up your attachment to knowing. Give up your attachment to having to know what tomorrow will bring. Forget about tomorrow. Tomorrow will never come and the only reality you get to live in is now. Number five, change your view. Take the position from this moment on of seeing every moment in your life, every circumstance, every experience that shows up in your life from here on as opportunity, not oppositional. As opportunity, not oppositional. Bad things are going to happen. It is not a mistake. It's not God's will. It's not because you are a sinner or a bad person. It's the most natural, the most normal, the most inevitable thing in a person's lifetime. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's not your karma. It's not your destiny. So when the inevitable comes, and every time it does come, first stop judging yourself about it. Stop asking what did I do to deserve this? Why is this happening to me? Stop judging yourself. Stop judging others. As much as the first thing we want to do is to blame someone for what's happening, blame someone for what's happening to us, it gets us nowhere. It gets us nowhere. So give it up. Stop judging every event. It's not important, again, for you to even know why that happened, why this bad thing has happened to me. What's important is for you to not be obsessed by it. Be grateful for everything, including the bad stuff. 99.9% .9 of everything that I have learned in my lifetime has been from the bad stuff, has been from the mistakes, has been from the offenses, has been from the bad stuff. When one of my teachers, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, was asked, who was your greatest teacher? He replied, 
the Chinese government. The Chinese government. Everything is opportunity. In Zen, everything that happens, every circumstance that we find ourselves in in any given moment, we understand it to be the lesson at hand and our teacher in our company. Opportunity, not oppositional. For everything, including the bad stuff, view whatever you meet as your teacher or the lesson at hand. Respond as you would to learn something you were convinced your life depended on. Just concern yourself with this. So going through life, every moment of life, when you really practice this opportunity, not oppositional, it looks like this. Always doing good. Always avoiding evil. Appreciating your lunacy. And pray for help. Okay? Like that. Like that. When you try to go through it on your own, there will be suffering. Do not be afraid to reach out to others. They've been there, done that, and probably will be there and do it again. So, as a friend of mine used to say, uh, learn from the mistakes of others. You will not have to learn from them yourself. You know, your own mistakes. So, uh, reach out. Ask for help. Avoid always doing evil in response to evil. Always do good no matter what. Turn the other cheek. Appreciate your lunacy. Because it's all lun lunacy and we're lunatics in a lunatic asylum. <laughs> Don't mean nothing. <laughs> <laughs> a meteor hit Russia the other day. <laughs> if that isn't God saying, what the fuck? <laughs> you know, give it up. <laughs> this could be you. <laughs> and we're worried about what the stock market's going to do. Probably the best place for it to have hit was Wall Street. <laughs> Number six, this is essential. If you get nothing else out of tonight, this is essential. You will never advance towards emancipation, freedom, enlightenment, whatever term you want. You will never know nirvana until you practice this religiously, spiritually, every day. Always. The key word before I tell you the rest is always. Always and always forgive yourself and others. And when you can't forgive yourself and others, forgive yourself for not being able to forgive yourself and others. <laughs> always forgiving yourself and others is what is called the heart of Kanzian, or being the bodhisattva of compassion. Kanzian is the Japanese word for Kuan Yin, which is the Chinese word for Avalokitesvara, which is the Indian word for the bodhisattva of compassion. Avalikitesvara, the bodhisattva of compassion, is considered the highest level of Buddha, of Buddha nature. Uh, the bodhisattva of compassion is grace multiplied by infinity. Always forgive yourself and others. And yes, when you can't forgive yourself and others, forgive yourself for not being able to forgive yourself and others. Always 
forgive yourself and others because you need to know there are a few people in my life since 2011 I still haven't forgiven and don't think I'll be able to one day and I don't care number seven be grateful in the morning be grateful at noontime be grateful when the sun goes down on the path toward emancipation or enlightenment if all you ever do is say thank you that is sufficient. If all your spiritual practice is from here on is thank you, that is sufficient. There is nothing more powerful, more supportive, more vital than gratitude. There is a story a very dear friend of mine, more like a brother, told me once not too long ago, and I never forget it. It was from his childhood about something his father always said when people around him would complain. Did you have a nice meal? Always look for the things you are grateful for and not so much the things you regret. Did you have a nice meal? You're saying, always focus on the things you are grateful for and forget about the stuff you regret. Regretting is nothing more than getting stuck in the past and if you get stuck in the past, you stay there long enough and then you die. Shakyamuni Buddha said, Let us rise up and be thankful. For if we didn't learn a lot today, at least we learned a little. And if we didn't learn a little, at least we didn't get sick. And if we got sick, at least we didn't die. So let us be thankful. Be grateful in the morning. Be grateful in the noontime. Be grateful when the sun goes down. Be grateful, be grateful, be grateful. And if you find it difficult to be grateful, you need to make a baby, and when she gets to three and a half years old, you'll be grateful all the time as long as she's around you. Number eight, use everything. This use everything is a fundamental teaching in Zen Buddhism. If you use difficulties to plan your day, it will give your life meaning. Most of us want to dispose of difficulties. We want to avoid them. We want to cross the street on the other side so we don't have to get in front of them. If you use difficulties to plan your day, your life will have meaning. Dogen's instructions to the Tenzo, the community chef, was to use everything when making the community meal for the day. What Zen calls the supreme meal is your life. And like the instructions to the Tenzo, we are to use everything, waste nothing. So whatever life gives you, use it to live your life. Use it to live your life. So in Zen monasteries in Japan, uh, they are never built near a Wawa or a supermarket. <laughs> uh, and they, have, they rarely have refrigerators. So every day in the practice of tokahatsu, the monks go out and ritually beg for food in the villages that are usually around the monasteries. And they never know what the people are obviously going to bring out. And so they get their satchels filled up with whatever they collect, bring it back to the kitchen, dump it all on the table, and the tenzo has been instructed to use everything, waste or discard nothing, 
Everything that is on that table must be used in preparing the meal. And if he, if he or she is a tenzo, it means that they have reached a level of understanding and awareness in Zen to know how to do that and to not just put together food to eat, but a meal that is pleasurable and a meal that nourishes the community's body so that they may continue to practice. Use everything. Shakyamuni Buddha said, happiness follows sorrow, sorrow follows happiness. But when one no longer discriminates happiness and sorrow, a good deal or a bad deed, then he or she is truly free. Then he or she is truly free. When you can use the disappointments in your life, the offenses in your life, the painful moments in your life to live your life, then you are truly free. When you are trying to avoid them and contrive a lifestyle to where you can avert them and you know, uh, not be affected, uh, not be touched by them, then you are a slave to them. True freedom is best realized in using every circumstance and every situation to live your life. That is why any teacher or any zendo that convinces you by creating a space of blissfulness to practice in is where to practice is not the place to go. The Zen masters used to say there are three requirements, and these requirements are metaphors for life as well. Three requirements for an official Zendo. Three things you need to have a Zendo, to have a Zen center, to have a practicing center. One is a conducive environment. And that environment is not just about creating a peaceful or serene place for meditation. It must also be a place that brings everything you need to learn to the surface. That's a conducive environment. Second, a strict master. So in a Zen monastery, it's the Roshi who is the strict master. In your life, it's got to be you. And that's where practicing on purpose every day of your life comes in. And last but not least, a good cook. <laughs> and that is why the Tenzo is usually someone in the community who the Roshi has recognized having reached an awareness and a spirit of benefish, ben, benef, uh, benef, ben, what the hell's the word? Benefactory <laughs> in their own practice. A good cook. And by good cook in your own life, it leads into, um, again, one of the next uh, rules or ingredients of fertilization. It has to do with, uh, the Buddha said, the wise have mastered body, word, and mind. They are the true masters. So in the next ingredient, the ninth ingredient, it has to do with, and I'm not going to read through this whole thing. You can read it, take it home and read it. But it has to do with, you know, the good cook. It has to do with taking care of your body by taking care of your body. Eating nourishing foods, drinking plenty of water, getting plenty of rest, getting exercise in, taking care of your body. But it also has to do with taking care of your mind. The mind, like the body, needs to be trained. It needs to be trained. And as I said earlier, the body is a hell of a lot easier to train than the mind is. 
So by taking care of your mind with a good cook, it means that you, you practice, you design your life in such a way that you minimize your exposure to those things that are harmful in life, to those uh, reading materials, to things on television, to the kinds of music you listen to, to the kinds of conversations you have with others, to the social circles you gather in, whatever informs you, the practice is to live your life in such a way that it nourishes you and strengthens you and supports you rather than diminishes your energy and creates fearfulness. You know, the Buddha said, life is difficult enough. How can we be anything else but kind to ourselves and to others? Life is difficult enough. Don't add to it. Don't add to it. I want to read to you very quickly, go through this very quickly. Take care of your body is what we mean by right food. Take care of your mind is what we mean by right activity. The Buddha again said, life is so very difficult, how can we be anything but kind to ourselves, to our loved ones, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, nature, etc. But kindness requires responsibility. Then responsibility requires action. Kindness requires responsibility. You need to take care of yourself. You need to take care of the things that matter to you and the people that matter to you. You need to take care of your environment, making it conducive. And the only way you fulfill that responsibility is by acting on it every day and every moment. There is never a time that you should ever consider. It's kind of like trying to lose weight and break your obsession with chocolate. And I say that because that's an obsession of mine. I love Oreo cookies. And you need to know that I have been there when I have said, I can eat one. I cannot eat one. I can't even eat half the box. I eat all of it, you see. And knowing that, I refrain from buying Oreo cookies. Now, if you want to offer me one, I'll take it and leave. But uh, it's like that. You need to take care of your life. You need to take care of yourself. Again, because the only way you are going to be a benefit to anyone else in life is if you are healthy and happy and strong. I tell parents in the parent, parenting and relationship seminars I've done over the years that the most important thing you have to offer your children is your own happiness and well-being. When your children see that you are happy and healthy, they will naturally be happy and strive for health, healthiness. The most important thing we have to offer life is our happiness and well-being. Meditating every day is what we mean by being kind to yourself. If you don't meditate, if you haven't started meditating, if you don't meditate now, and if you don't plan to meditate, leave a copy here. Don't take it with you. Don't come back and listen to me. You may have already decided to do that, but if you haven't, don't come back and listen to me or anybody else. Forget spending your money on my book or any other book. If you don't meditate, nothing will change. Nothing will change. Meditating every day for the emancipation of all beings from sorrow and suffering 
and the causes of sorrow and suffering is the kindest thing you will ever do and the wisest thing you will ever do for yourself and others. For yourself and others. And last but not least, as we get to the end of this, I included this. Laugh and laugh, then laugh again and again until your belly hurts, is what we mean by right pleasure. When we were little, all that my, this is a self, this is a story about my life. When we were little, all that my brothers and sisters had and I had to do to laugh was to look at each other. Even when our parents threatened to punish us if we didn't stop laughing, when we looked at each other, we laughed. We didn't plan it. We didn't need the moment to be any particular way. We didn't contrive it or think about it. We just looked around and we laughed. Laughter is inherent. Laughter is the vitality, the vitamin of life. Laughter is nourishing. Do as much of it as you possibly can. And if you don't know how to laugh, you need to remember how to laugh because a life without laughing is certainly not one that will get you through any spiritual practice. Happiness is the easiest thing to experience in life. Surprise! It is easy to find, too. All you have to do is remove everything you think you need to do to be happy. Everything you think you need to have to be happy. Then, happiness will always be right where you are. We didn't need anything. All we had to do was look at each other and we laughed. I say. And even when our parents threatened to beat the daylights out of us, we looked at each other we laughed. So we got a lot of beatings. <laughs> I surely did. So I included for you tonight the words from a very special song and uh, one that you should sing every day. <clears throat> I see trees of green, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and for you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, clouds of white, bright blessed days, dark sacred nights, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of a rainbow so pretty in the sky are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. The colors of a rainbow so pretty in the sky are there on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry, I watch them grow. You know they're gonna learn a whole lot more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. Yes, I think to myself, what a wonderful world. 
And when I look at you, I do. <laughs> I can forget my day job, right? <laughs> and when I look at you, I think to myself, what a wonderful privilege it's been to share this night with you. Thank you. Now commercial time. Starting next Tuesday and every Tuesday, I will be here from 6 to 7 here at Yoga for Living, teaching Zen meditation. If you want to meditate with me, come. If you want to learn how to meditate with me, come. If you want to train your mind, come. If you don't, don't come. Oh, that was it. Okay. Yes. Hey, a couple of children asked me tonight and tomorrow morning is... Um, is it the third Sunday every month where, uh, not that you can't bring children all the time, right. but... The third Sunday of the month, tomorrow morning between 9 and, and 10.30, uh, we will be meditating and teaching. I'll be meditating and teaching a class, and uh, parents are welcome to bring their children uh, to the third Sunday of each month. Uh, I, <laughs> if you go to Tassajara, which is one of the uh, Zen centers that belongs to the San Francisco Zen Center. They have a sign on, uh, uh, it's a very beautiful, very gorgeous, natural uh, center. And it's, you've got to actually hike in part of the way to get to it. And so they have a sign uh, when you come in. Uh, it says, unattended children will be ordained and sent to Kogoji Monastery in Japan for training. <laughs> Act accordingly. <laughs> Good night.